0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 3, 1-7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered this is god's word So
1: timing matters. Damien asked me what weeks I could preach before he told me what texts were assigned to those weeks. And when he emailed me the list and I saw it was coming, I I just texted him back and said, that's a punk move. That's a punk move. Um, Timing matters. And we want to talk about that this morning. I want to begin by telling you a story about uh, my life when I was about five or six And a couple things going on then and there. I was very much uh, interested in reading and exploring uh, events from history. And I've got a six-year-old now, and, and sure enough, the same thing is true. He loves reading about war, and I did as well. And when I was about six in kindergarten, I went through a phase where I was immersed in reading about the Revolutionary War. And I was fascinated to dress like a soldier to march around the neighborhood or the house, to read stories and to listen to, we had tapes back in the day, to listen to tapes about what was going on then and there. It was also a phase where I was, uh, for the first time in school, and apparently had noticed the opposite sex, and there was a cute girl who I was smitten with. She had a way with the Crayola markers, I suppose. Um, Her name was Emily, not my Emily, Uh, but a different Emily and I was taken with her. And so like any six-year-old boy who was smitten with a girl and who was infatuated with history, old history of things like the Revolutionary War, I did what seemed very logical and sensible to me. I wrote her a letter to show my care and concern and the letter arrived at her house and As it turned out, my mom, who'd helped me put it in the mail, stamp it, address it, take it out to the mailbox, she had seen what I'd written, and she called ahead to Emily's mother to warn her what was coming, because when Emily opens this very sweet letter that has arrived from a boy in her class, she finds a letter saying, Emily, the British are coming, the British are coming, get out. Timing matters. Showing care and concern is a good thing. Learning about history and significant events is a good thing, but things go terribly awry if you forget when and where you are. And that's actually what Peter's talking about in this passage, how we very easily, as Christian men and women, forget when and where we are. This passage, these verses in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, follow uh, two previous texts, uh, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 2, and then again in verse 18 of chapter 2, talking about how we continue to show our commitment to and care for those around us who are not themselves Christians. You'll remember in chapter 2, we saw in verses 11 and 12 that we're We're named exiles and sojourners. We're not in our home and we're passing through, as it were. We're migrants. We're on a journey and on a way. That's why pilgrims through the centuries have identified as pilgrims. And that's why the single most read book written in English, aside from the Bible, for centuries has been the Pilgrim's Progress. Because Bunyan's tale provides a way of viewing our lives through a biblical lens, that we're on our way to life with God. We're exiles and sojourners, but verses 12 and 13 say, we are still to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We're passing through, and yet we're not to look askance at, we're not to be aloof from, we're not to be unconcerned for those who are still here. And that's what this passage, that's what this text from chapter 2, verse 11 on through chapter 3, verse 7 is about. How do you keep loving your non-Christian friends, business workers, political leaders, or spouses? How do you keep loving them appropriately after you've been converted, after Christ has captivated you? And in this text, we come specifically to the closest of relationships in the family, the husband and wife relationship. What is called for when one spouse is converted and the other spouse has not yet been converted? What does faithfulness look like? We see three things here, I think, and we we do well to take them in turn. First, we've got a word to wives. Verses 1 to 6. Uh, and we'll focus in particular on verses one and two. Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You see, the challenge is that we oftentimes forget what time it is. We forget when and where we are, and we can, we can go awry in two different ways in the Christian life. We can go awry either by failing to have hope or we can go awry by failing to be realistic. We can go awry by, by failing to have hope, by believing this is it. We, we learn in Corinthians, Paul says there are some who think the resurrection's already happened. This is the best it is. This is as good as it gets as it were. And there's nothing greater to long for, to desire for, to aspire unto. Be content, for it gets no better. But we do want to listen to some words of Peter. He wrote a second letter, 2 Peter. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he speaks of how we are called to be those who wait for and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. And to the temptation to lack hope, He says we're to hasten the day of the coming of God. We're to long for it. We're to aspire to it. We're to eagerly desire it and we're to live in a way that that brings it forward as it would. To hasten the coming of the Lord. There's a second way we can go awry. We can be all hope, all desire, all aspiration for something better and no realistic sense of what's actually going to take place in the here and now, right? We can live as if it were the ideal. We can live as if it in our family, in our business, in our neighborhood, as if it should be perfect and pure and all right and beautiful and good. And we can make others miserable in so doing, can't we? And against that, Peter gives us another caution. He says, you are to wait for the coming of the day of God, Right? You're not just to hasten it. You're not just to bring it forward and desire it eagerly, but you're to wait patiently for it. You're to know your place in time. You're to know that you're still in a period of expectancy, right? You could perhaps think of a pregnant mother who is moving along slowly, 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 waiting for the baby to come, right? Hastening the arrival, as the second trimester moves to the third trimester, as the days get hotter and more muggy, as the sleep becomes further and further apart, as it were, desiring the baby to come, and yet realizing that it's good and well and appropriate for this waiting period because it is a time in which the baby grows and strengthens and develops, and it's actually in the end game a very good thing that the baby doesn't immediately spring from the womb, right? There's that tension and that dynamic in the experience of pregnancy. There's that tension and dynamic, Peter says, in our own lives and calling as Christians. Well, how does this this passage in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 get at that? It says, very simply, wives are to be subject to their own husbands. And notice what it doesn't say. There's a couple different things it doesn't say. The text doesn't say why God has made it such that people will be married, that people will be married to people of the opposite gender, or why there's a particular order between husbands and wives. Some of you who were here a year ago remember uh, that Ted preached a long series of reflections on marriage. And you could go back if you, you weren't here to listen to some of those to get a broader picture. This doesn't talk about that at all. It just assumes that marriage is a good thing It assumes that marriage involves a husband and a wife, and it assumes that there's an order, and it calls the wife to be subject to or to submit to the husband, right? Second thing it doesn't talk about at all is that it doesn't say what it means for a wife to submit to a husband. There are no details whatsoever given here. You could go to other passages, other biblical texts talk about both of these things. So you could go look at Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Timothy 2 and get different facets of what it means for God to design marriage to be between a man and a woman and for there to be a certain order and complementarity to that. But none of that's here. Peter's about something very different. It's about a very specific question, a question that comes up only one other time in the New Testament. It comes up in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians 7. What do you do when you have a man and a woman and marriage assumedly is fine and good, but one of them is converted and becomes a Christian and the other, whether for total disinterest or for just lack of care, whether they're ardently opposed to the gospel or they're rather indifferent to it, they haven't been converted. What do you do? Do you hasten perfection and assume that you ought to leave your marriage, that you ought to seek out perhaps another, a Christian marriage? Do you believe that you ought to flee marriage and go lead a single life? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that there are are avenues of ministry open to single people that aren't open to those of us who are married. Do you do that? Do you hasten the day and perfection by leaving your mixed marriage as it were? Or do you just assume that this sort of murky existence where you're captivated by one thing and your spouse is either utterly indifferent to it or ardently opposed to it is just normal and you got to stick it out and that's the way it'll always be. And it gets no better than this. Peter offers a very different word. He doesn't take either of those tacks. He rather says, you are to stay. You are to be subject to that commitment. You don't shirk the vows that you've made. Paul gives the same answer in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if they will stay with you, you stay with them. If they flee, you can't do anything about that. But so long as they're willing to remain married to you as a Christian, you, you remain married. And Peter gives a reason right here in verse 2. Peter says that we're to do this so that when they see your respectful and pure conduct, they may be one without a word, right? The goal isn't to berate them with the gospel, The goal isn't somehow to leave up post-it notes of Bible verses all over their bathroom mirror so they'll be inundated with gospel proclamation and somehow cave. It's rather by your respect, by your sincerity, by your faithfulness, by your quiet care and love, showing your graciousness to them that they start to see the grace of God. And so Peter is calling us not to somehow shirk earthly commitments because we've been captivated with heavenly joy in the gospel, but rather, as exiles and sojourners, we are to seek the good of those around us, in particular, seeking the good of family members and even spouses around us, not lambasting them with the gospel, But when we know that they don't believe it, when we know that they're not entrusting themselves to the God of it, that we would quietly and gently respect them in a pure way, it says here, that they might be one without a word, right? Now, it's probably worth printing out, this is not normal. It's not normal around the globe in many places today. We live in a strange place and time in that probably a good portion of you either are in a marriage to somebody who's of a different faith or you've got family who are in that position, right? I mean, America is this strange mixture of peoples and religions and cultures and so forth that is historically pretty anachronistic. But back in this day, when Peter's writing, if someone is a Jewish person and their spouse converts to Christianity they can be divorced. If someone is of a particular polytheistic approach and someone becomes a Christian, they will be shunned and cast aside. If someone is of a Zoroastrian sort of approach to religion and life, and someone goes and becomes a a Jewish proselyte or a Christian, right? They will, in fact, be shirked, not just by their spouse, but often by the community. And I trust you know, around the world, there are places where this is still the case, right? where the conversion of one's spouse can either put them on the street or under threat of death, right? And so it's not a small thing. It may be something we take somewhat for granted in this land and time. It's not a small thing to ask what happens when one spouse is converted and the other isn't. And the Bible suggests you don't seek to flee as if heaven's already here, Nor do you simply sit as if things won't get any better. But you've been given a mission. You have been given a mission that is bigger than your marriage, but is inclusive of your marriage. It doesn't shirk it. By your gentle, quiet, loving care and respect for your spouse and for the fact that you took vows to them, you are a testimony. You are a pointer, a signal suggesting to them the grace and the patience of Jesus. Now, some of you will have been adult converts. Others of us, if we weren't adult converts, we've all met adult converts. You can convert to anything, to a religion, to a political party or movement, to a medicinal approach to health, to a certain exercise regime, to some kind of technology, And I think we can all rally around while we have different hobbies and avocations. Oftentimes, nothing is so grating and annoying as a convert, right? All they wanna talk about is whatever, right? The way in which they judge people's righteousness, intelligence, right, or civility is do they buy in or do they not buy in, right? There is oftentimes, whether it's in politics or in the realm of health, or yes, in the realm of religion, converts are those who are least gracious, right? There's probably something psychological going on there, right? They've just entered into a new journey, as it were, and are feeling relatively insecure. And so looking down on those who are more outside than they is something that shores up their sense of self, right? Peter's calling us to a remarkable, patient, self-sacrificing sort of care and love for the other, for the spouse. Gentle, quiet, respectful love for the one to whom we're yoked, to, to the one to whom we're united in marriage, right? Not berating them, not looking down our nose at them, not viewing them as somehow being more evil than we were the day before yesterday, as it were, right, before we were converted, but instead seeking to love them and through our love seeking for god to draw him in to draw them into his love. And so we see here not a embrace of the status quo, not a shirking of present commitments, pretending as if heaven is here already, but a mission that we're given to care for our non-christian spouse, to seek through our conduct to point them to Jesus. There's a second thing we see here, a word to husbands in verse 7. It's surely smaller because this was a smaller phenomenon. It was true in that day as you read your New Testament, as it's proven true sociologically through the centuries. Women convert faster to Christianity. It's, it's just proven true, and it's not unique to Christianity. It's true religiously across the board, as it were, um, I don't know how to account for that, but there it is. You read your New Testament, fast converts almost always are women, as it were. And oftentimes, men are just rather slow to get with it. Um, And so what we see in texts describing the history of the early Christian church is it's very rare to have a husband who's a believer whose wife isn't a believer. But it's quite common to have the phenomenon of a wife who is converted whose husband, for whatever reason, just ain't buying it, right? Right? But it's rather remarkable. This is the third text in this passage, beginning back in chapter 2, verse 15, that speaks of how we care uh, for those around us, and in particular for those with some authority over us. And this is the only case where there's a word to both parties. Chapter 2, verse 15, you're supposed to submit to the authorities in government. There is no assumption that Christians will ever be in authority in government. Christians were minorities. There's a reason they're getting crucified, right? Because they're not in charge. And and the notion that a Christian might be a ruler is just absolutely crazy. It's sci-fi to one of Peter's uh, hearers, right? Similarly, in 2.18 to 25, what we looked at last week... You're supposed to submit to your earthly masters, to those who run businesses, those who are economically uh, and in the marketplace who are influential. You're supposed to respect their position and be dutiful employees, as it were, even if they're not Christians. Again, there's virtually no expectation that Christians are going to be running Fortune 500 companies in the first century. We know of the rare wealthy person who could be a patron and benefactor to the church. But by and large, Christianity was a poor man's religion. And there was just no imagination for wealthy, uh, culture-influencing Christians in significant ways. Here, though, it's interesting. Addressing the wife who's called to remain in submission or subjection to the husband who's called to quiet respect and loving care, who's called to seek his salvation by continuing to be married to and relating to him in goodwill, in faithfulness, there's still a word to the husband. It's interesting. There must have been some husbands who'd converted. And they're told here in verse seven, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a couple phrases here that are difficult and much debated. First of all, of course, the, the language that the woman is the weaker vessel. What on earth does that mean, right? Um, some, of course, have suggested, like Aristotle of old, that women are less spiritual. Well, having read verses 1 to 6, that can't be the case, right? Right? By and large, women are being captivated by the gospel. The notion that Peter would then say somehow they're less spiritual, A, doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible, and B, doesn't even make sense in the the passage here, right? So the view of the ancients, of the Greeks, that somehow women are less spiritual, that can't be what Peter and the, the Bible are commending to us here. Does it mean then that women are simply physically weaker by and large, That's what some people have suggested, that the typical adult male is stronger than and less vulnerable to physical harm than the typical adult female, exceptions notwithstanding. It's true through the ages, but that's probably not all that's being entailed here. Why on earth would physical weakness be a point of concern for Peter here? What Peter probably means is simply that in the ancient world and Here today, in a different way, women are by and large economically and socially more vulnerable than men when a marriage ends. Particularly in the ancient world. They didn't have divorce laws and proceedings like we do today. The woman could be cast out. If someone has converted to another religion, they may well be punished legally and punitively. Um, The woman is in a very vulnerable position if she doesn't line up with the religion of the house of the man, as it were. And so what Peter's saying is a Christian husband who has a non-Christian wife needs to realize that puts the, the woman, the wife, in a very dangerous position where she very likely will start to wonder what's going to happen to me. Is he going to throw me out? And if he throws me out, am I going to be punished? And if he throws me out, am I going to wind up on the streets? And if he throws me out, am I have to? go to other forms of of life and other practices to put food on the table, as it were. She's in a vulnerable position. She's in a weaker position. He's in a position of power, as it were. And what Peter's saying here is be aware of your power and don't use power to exploit or to lord it over others. But rather, like Jesus, who is just talked about at the end of chapter two, Like Jesus who had all power but didn't use it somehow simply to take care of himself but poured himself out in service to others, seeking the good of others, we're to use power and strength for the blessing and benefit of others. There's a second phrase here that's really difficult. The last phrase in verse 7. So uh, we're told that the husbands are to live with the wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. And some people get really bothered by this. Uh, You know, does that mean that if I wasn't as kind and gracious to my spouse yesterday as I should have been, and probably most of us could line up behind that at some point here or there, does that mean God doesn't hear my prayers, right? Well, we've already heard the call to worship this morning that Ben read from Hebrews 4, right? And we've already sung, boldly I approach the throne, our prayers, and thankfully this morning we can say our worship isn't received by God because of its sincerity or because of our moral performance, right? Our worship to God this morning and our prayers before our Father throughout the week are received because of Jesus, right? He atones not just for you, but for your works, and not just for your works, but even your good works, which, I hate to break it to you, aren't that good, right? So even your prayers are received for Jesus' sake. We saw that in Hebrews 4. We sung that. It can't mean here what the Bible excludes elsewhere, that somehow God won't listen to you if you sin. So what does it mean that, that this won't hinder your prayers? What it probably means is that Peter assumes his Christian husbands out there in the congregation are longing and praying for their spouse to be converted. And he's simply saying, don't live in a way that contradicts that. Don't live in a way that opposes what you desire. You want your spouse to be saved. Live in a gracious way that will commend the grace of Christ to them. Live in a patient way that will before them demonstrate the patience of God to all of you live in a selfless way that will exemplify the kind of selfless sacrifice that Jesus offered on all of our behalf, right? So you're to live with your non-Christian wife in an understanding way, realizing the dangerous and precarious position that even if you don't think they're in, they will feel from time to time. And you're to care for them in ways that make your prayers more likely because more often than not God doesn't answer prayers with a bolt of lightning from the heavens but he uses men and women. He uses Christians as instruments of his grace. He takes great joy in not doing things simply on his own but rather in involving others. You know, one of the the great delights in life is getting to go and eat with other people and There are different sorts of of cooks. There are two kinds of people in the world, I think Seinfeld would say, probably, right? There are those who wanna cook by themselves and there are those who love to cook with others, right? Now, irrespective of how good the meal comes out, it's a lot more fun and beautiful to be in someone's house who loves to help bringing someone else into the task, right? Whether it's a child or a neighbor invited over, who's able not simply to keep all the tasks to themselves and keep control, but who is so confident, who is so hopeful that they're able to involve someone who perhaps doesn't really know what they're doing, and to make it a team effort, and to bring them into the joy of preparing something. And you know what? That's the image of God. I mean, in 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that we were reconciled to God, right? Right? In that Jesus, the one who was was without sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God and that we were reconciled to God. But it tells us also, secondly, that God gave us the message of reconciliation. He doesn't just save you, but he commissions you, right? He doesn't just feed you, but he gets you in on the cooking, as it were, right? So that you are, as 2 Corinthians 6.1 says, a fellow worker with God. That always strikes me as crazy talk, right? A fellow worker with God. You don't work in your own strength. You don't work with your own game plan. You don't work as well as God. You don't work in perfect and pure ways. All of that's true. But by God's grace, you do work with God. You do witness to the gospel. You do point others to Jesus right? And just as we need to be wary of having an inflated sense of our capacities, our performance, and our significance in the kingdom, and we do, we need to be humbled. Humility isn't somehow thinking less of yourself than is true, and God has called you a fellow worker of his. And God has said, you are a part of his plan and his mission. You are being sent, even into the families you've come from, you're being sent back to help show and display the graciousness of God that they might be captivated by the God of grace. So you're not being sent back to the status quo and you're not moving forward to some idyllic future. You stand where you are being sent back with a mission to display graciousness that they might savor the God of grace. One last thing we see here. Third, the text speaks about hope and fear. And I think we do well not to overlook this on hope and fear. Verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. It's just spoken of how the the woman's adornment in verse four ought not to be, and it, it speaks of how they shouldn't be adorned with beautiful things and clothing and jewelry, as it were. It's not suggesting that getting dressed up is a bad thing. Rather, notice in that text The woman's adornment is to seek out that which in God's sight is very precious. What is of greatest significance to a Christian woman is not the favor of a man or of a community or of anyone else out there, not even of their own conscience, but what is true of them in God's sight. That is very precious. Jewelry may be precious, The text isn't negating that. It's not denying that pretty things are nice. Having a a nice jeweled band or a nice necklace is a nice thing. That's true. But you want to know what's very or truly or most precious? It's what's true in God's sight, right? That's why the author here speaks of these as women who hoped in God. Hope is looking beyond the present to something that is yet to come. Hope is something that is opposed to sight, right? But is no less real than sight. That's why Hebrews 11.1 will say that in hope we have the substance of things not yet seen. We have the reality as it were, even though we can't see it, even though it's not obvious. These women commended here are looking forward to something greater, That's what motivates them. That's what motivates their staying in these marriages. That's what motivates them to be gracious to someone who doesn't seem to be getting the gospel that's captivated them. That's what motivates them to be patient and long-suffering with people who aren't encouraging them in their faith, but perhaps are even challenging them in it. It's about hope. But notice it also addresses a second thing, a reality that that strikes us, fear. As we read in verse 6, You are her, Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now notice, neither here nor anywhere in the Bible do you read of frightening things being downplayed. There are frightening things out there, right? I dare you, watch the six o'clock news, right? It's the most depressing, frightening thing you will ever encounter right? It's all negative, and it's in your city, right? It's in your neighborhood, right? There are frightening things out there. There are frightening things in the home. Notice who it's talking about here, Sarah and Abraham. Sarah's life was not all peaches and cream, right? We like to think about the glories of her husband Abraham, the great patriarch, and God's call, and they go off, and God gives them a promised land, and they're going to have many children, and so she's going to be regaled as as the matriarch of this huge tribe and people, Israel? Yeah, if I had a daughter, and I don't, and he was still around and he's not, Abraham wouldn't be allowed to date her, right? If you've read Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, the guy's not a great date. I mean, he's a godly man, but he's not terribly good with the ladies, as it were. He's not always caring for her. He's not always putting her interests above his own. He's not always selflessly watching out for her. He's not always her strongest advocate. There are frightening moments in Sarah's life. But she graciously, we're told here, out of hope, sticks it out with the guy. Loves him. Cares for him. Right? Shows great graciousness to him not lording it over him when he fails, but encouraging him along the way and walking a rather remarkable journey, the two of them together, as they seek to obey the Lord. Frightening things aren't false and illusory, but notice in this verse we see frightening things aren't ultimate. Fear is not ultimate for God's people. You're her children if you do good And don't fear anything that's frightening. That's the trick. Knowing that it's frightening, but not fearing it. Not because it's not real, but because there's something yet to come. Think about the way in which we care for those who suffer from cancer. The most common treatment for those seriously along the way, chemotherapy. Chemo is a rather absurd thing, isn't it? You are ingesting something that is breaking your body down. You are ingesting something that in many cases was developed for chemical and biological warfare. You are ingesting something that strips down your body's ability to strengthen itself. And we do this and people seek it out. And massive amounts of money is paid for it. Because we understand that in breaking something down, something greater and hopefully come on the other end. You experience this in smaller ways every day, don't you? We understand that in laying our head down on the pillow, we expect to get back up again in the morning. And we understand that as the sun goes down at night, it will swing back around, as it were, in our vantage point, and we will see it rise in the morning. It's just as important to have as realistic a notion spiritually of what's true of those physical occurrences. That Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that he who lays down his life in service, in patient care of others, in selfless sacrifice, in seeking not their own good, but the good of others, he who lays down his life will be the one who takes it back up again. Jesus doesn't simply say, keep at it, this is the best it will be. Jesus doesn't simply say, you can have it all, here and now, and you ought to expect the best, comfort, joy, and entertainment in every moment. He says, you have to lay down your life, but you get to take it back up again, right? We're called to walk without fear through the frightening things, but we're called to do so knowing there's hope yet to come. And that's the word that Peter began his epistle with, isn't it? That... God has called us to a living hope that we've been born anew to through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as Peter wrote in chapter 1, verse 3. That's what enables us, that's what motivates us as people of hope to live out of that hope in the midst of fear, whether it's in the world at large, whether it's in the political sphere, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's even in the home that you live in that we would walk through those difficult times and that we would walk in a posture of self-sacrificial service and that we would walk in a gracious and patient way that would point others to the God of grace. Let's pray and ask that God would make it so. Father, we thank you that you are not a God pleased to let death have the last word. We thank you that you are not a God willing to allow sin to undo your plans. You are a God of resurrection and of forgiveness. You are a God of life, and you are a God who has promised much and proven true. And so we pray this day that you would make so very real in our hearts the hope that we have, that aware of the fearful, frightening things amidst us, we might continue to walk in a gracious and patient manner, a way befitting the example of Jesus who's gone before us, a way that would... Lead others by our gentle, quiet care and respect to see you and to be taken with the beauty of the God of grace. We pray this in your Son's beautiful and holy name.